When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. Today, we'll be talking with John Clinch, the author of The General and Julia, a novel. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. And how are you, Deidre? Great. I would like for you to start by telling us a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project. I come to the General and Julia uh, by way of having written, I guess, three published novels before this one. Uh, It seems to me and it seemed to my uh, editor and my agent that I was well suited to uh, this one because I tend to write historical fiction. Uh, Some of my historical fiction before has been in around the same time period, uh, around the Civil War. My first book was sort of the, uh, it was called Finn, and it was the secret history of Huckleberry Finn's father. So people who knew that book uh, will probably be comfortable in meeting me again uh, with the General and Julius, since it's uh, sort of a very similar setting and certainly a similar time period. Uh, The general in question here is uh, General Ulysses S. Grant, later President Ulysses S. Grant, of course. The Julia is Julia, his wife, Uh, the love of his life from uh, from a young age all the way through until the end. She was sort of his North Star, his guiding light, his lodestone, and the uh, nature of the story that really interested me so much was that the more you know about him, uh, and basically most of us know him as a a Civil War figure and uh, a leader of the country as a president, the more you know about him, the more you think about his history, you realize that he was first and foremost uh, a loving, kind family man. Uh, He loved uh, Julia. She loved him. He loved their children. They had grandchildren. He was a doting uh, grandfather. And uh, toward the end of his life, he fell on some hard times. And he spent 
the last year, m- more importantly, the last 40 days or so of his life on this earth, uh, working very hard to leave something of value behind that would help support his family when he was gone. It was a kind of personal and familial heroism to me that was different from uh, the heroism that you might see in the in his reputation as a leader in the Civil War. This was something really personal, and uh, learning about it affected me and made me want to think about it and write about it. Now, even though these events uh, take place over 100 years ago, how does this book speak to people in today's society? Fair question, a good one and an important one. Uh, I always like to remind people that... Uh, No book gets written in a vacuum. It's always written in the time in which it appears. And this book, it seemed to me, with uh, the concerns that the country was facing in the Civil War, the concerns that Grant himself faced, and the thinking that he ultimately did about what his life had meant to the country in terms of that war, uh, were very like what we're going through right now. We're in a place where the country has never been since the Civil War uh, so thoroughly, completely, utterly divided. And uh, that was his mission uh, to put the country back together. In fact, uh, he, at the beginning of his career in the military and uh, the beginning of his time uh, as a leader of the Union Army, Uh, was really functionally concerned with putting the country back together more than he was concerned uh, personally uh, with ending the evil of slavery. He came around to that issue as time went by quite quickly uh, because because of his fondness for human beings. Uh, But he had come up in uh, in a family that uh, was an abolitionist family. He married a woman who, surprisingly enough, um, was the daughter of a slaveholder. Uh, and uh, these conflicts that he went through in his life, trying to trying to, to to put together his own past, his wife's past, and uh, the past and future of the country, seemed to me like just the kind of raw material that uh, we need to think about again right now. Can you tell the audience about the dialogue you have between Grant and Terrell and tell oh. us about who was Terrell? Yes, T- Terrell was, was a, is such an important character in the book, and I'm glad you mentioned him. I think I must have done 30 interviews about this book, and by golly, you're the first person to ask about Terrell. Uh, <laughs> Harrison Terrell was... Uh, Actually, he he, had, he was born a slave, uh, as was his his son, um, Robert, and uh, we meet him in the book as well. Uh, ultimately, he was freed at the close of the Civil War, and he went on to become a uh, an assistant, a butler, a factotum for uh, a, an important banker in Washington. 
And uh, Grant came to know him and came to appreciate him and like him so much that uh, he was able to hire him away from that banker. And uh, Terrell spent the whole remainder of Grant's life side by side with him. He was his he, he was his companion at all times. He took care of him. He uh, he, he ran the household for him. And uh, Grant called him Faithful Harrison. Uh, because their relationship was was so close. They were faithful to each other. Uh, Grant even got to know Harrison's son, Robert, who eventually would go on to be a a justice in Washington. Uh, This was certainly a time when uh, things were beginning to change in the country. So uh, Terrell was there all the way through to the end. He was one of the few people who was who were with Grant at the time of his death? Grant died in a, in a little cottage in uh, southern New York State, in the Adirondacks, central New York State, really central eastern New York State, and it was a cottage loaned to him by a friend so that he could get out of New York City and breathe some fresh air. He was dying of uh, throat cancer, and uh, with him were his wife and its children and his grandchildren, his doctor, and Harrison Terrell. Um, because he was so important to him, and and uh, and they they were they had become uh, quite a cooperative pair. So uh, Terrell was there right through to the end. He was uh, when when Grant had uh, sort of shooed away everybody in his life that was not important. Uh, Terrell was still there. And another character you have in the book is Julie. Tell us about her. Well, this was a this was sort of the the heart and soul of the of the problem for me, um, and uh, and it was a problem for the general and Julia the people as well. Um, almost since the uh, the birth of Julia Dent, who became Julia Dent Grant, his wife, um, she had lived on a, on a on a farm with her parents, and her father was a slaveholder. The uh, the farm had about how oh, thirty some slaves, and she grew up in that environment from earliest youth. Uh, there was an enslaved girl who kept her, who served as her companion, um, kept her company in the way that those things were prone to happen in that time. The two of them had, we don't know quite what in the way of a relationship. Uh, but we do know that she was enslaved, and we do know that her name was also Julia, as ironic as that might be. Now, in a, in a cruel twist of fate, in a way, because in order to uh, to refer to the two of them, um, the Dent's daughter was always Julia, and they shortened the other Julia's name just to Jewel. Uh, it, for as a matter of convenience, which is a terrible thing to do to a person, but not the only terrible thing done. At any rate, they uh, they grew up together, and when uh, when Julia became an adult and went off and got married and lived with with her husband Ulysses, um, Dent, her father, uh, assigned Jewel uh, to go with her and to to care for the family. Um, so that relationship of slaveholder 
to slave never changed. Uh, and in fact, as uh, General Grant went around the country from battle scene to battle scene through his career in the Civil War, uh, Julia, his wife, traveled with him an awful lot of the time. So he might be living in a tent or a, or a borrowed house or a cottage or a, or a cabin somewhere on some battlefield, the edge of some battlefield, and Julia would be there with him. And guess what? Jewel would be as well, which raised a lot of eyebrows, as you could imagine. Uh, because here was uh, Grant uh, fighting uh, fighting against slavery, and here was an enslaved woman among them. I I really wanted to figure out uh, what he must have felt about that, what he might have felt about that, how he might have understood it, uh, and I also wanted to explore as best as I could um, her position in that. In, in that group, um, I didn't really dare go into her mind the way I would dare go into Ulysses Grant's mind. Uh, I mean, there were things about her that I will never, that I will never understand. But in the book, I let, I let him do it. I let Grant try to uh, imagine what Jules' life must be like. And uh, that was important for me to kind of do it through him and to make him the curious uh, party about uh, this poor woman. Can you give us an example? Yes, I can. Here's, a, here's a, probably the best example. Um, in truth, uh, shortly after Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, Jewel... Well, Jewel and Julia were headed uh, on a train back home to Missouri, uh, where, Jul where Julia still lived, and uh, Ulysses Grant was elsewhere. So it was the two of them, Julia and Jewel. And the problem was that even though the Emancipation Proclamation had been issued, it had not yet taken effect in Missouri. And that's where they were headed. And that's where... Dent lived, Julia's father, and he was not known as a man who was kind to his slaves, and by golly, who can be, because it's a horrible thing. She was going back into an environment where she was going to have to deal with him once again, uh, and she escaped. By God, good for her. She managed somehow at a train station to uh, to vanish and go across the river and into Ohio and find her way. We do not know how from there. Um, all we know is that Julia ended up returning alone without her. We don't know what happened as far as I know to Jewel. And this is where um, I start to answer your question. Um, we have in the book a moment where Ulysses is imagining her crossing the river and entering into whatever life uh, she might find there. And he imagines, we see him imagining uh, sort of a, 
a, a kind of future that shatters like glass and goes off in all different directions ahead of her, that she might take this course, she might take that course, this might happen to her, this other thing might happen to her, she might feel this way, she might feel that way, as he tries in his mind to, to, to puzzle out uh, this unknowable future that she was facing. And uh, that, that idea that, that, that he was trying to puzzle out what damage had been done, uh, how she might carry on, uh, that was important to me, and I, and, and I wanted to handle it that way. Well, writing historical fiction, what did you learn about connecting the pieces? Basically, um, let me let me start with a quote, actually, from that. The uh, And it's more or less a quote. I can't swear that it's right on the money. But um, E.L. Doctorow uh, once said something to the effect that the historian can tell you what happened and the novelist tells you how it felt. And I think that's a good statement. And I think it's a true statement. And in my case, um, I was I entered into the project thinking that I would never know, will never know, um, how these people felt about what happened, how Grant felt, how Julia felt. But if we study the things that they did, um, we can, through the through the art of fiction, uh, kind of sympathetically uh, imagine eventually a consistent kind of character that uh, that would let us get to the heart of what a person who did those things might have been thinking and how he or she might have felt. So that's that was my job to look at the things we know and try to imagine the, the mental processes and the processes of the heart that would cause people to, uh, to take part in those actions and to take those actions. Now, tell us about the research you did for the book. The research that I did, I'm, <laughs> I have to confess to you, I, am, uh, I have an interesting relationship to research Basically, I'm like a golden retriever puppy dog with research. I can't, if, if I go out and I find a bone, I want to bring it back and just show it to the reader. <laughs> and that's not necessarily a good thing to do. Uh, I, I, I hate historical fiction that is kind of lumpy with, uh, with research where the, where the author has found a whole bunch of interesting facts, and he just insists on sharing them with you. Uh, I, I don't like to do that. I, I, I have to fight against my urge to do that. So basically, in some ways, uh, I limit myself to, uh, to, to, to the broad outlines. Um, uh, Ron Chernow's wonderful biography of Ulysses Grant was a starting point for me. And, uh, that's the one that really I walked away from thinking about Grant's, uh, the, the, the troubles they went through in the last year of his life more than anything else. Uh, I, you know, the, the, the book will tell you his entire life, including his childhood, his, his relationship with Julia, the, his, uh, his work in the, in the uh, Civil War, his work as president. But the thing that I came with, with a sort of a shot to the heart, was uh, his commitment in the last year to uh, do a 
great work of, uh, of goodness and kindness to support his family. Uh, that family stuff was what I walked away with. So there was that. There was another book by a guy named Charles Flood. Uh, I believe it was titled Grant's Last Victory. And it was really about his uh, his last year. Obviously, I was interested in that, and I wanted to look into it more deeply. Um, and the uh, I don't think we've mentioned this the financial misdealings that uh, that cost him his entire uh, his entire fortune, such as it was. He lost all his money in a Ponzi scheme. Uh, terrible as that was, he lost every nickel about a year before he died. And uh, that was that story was documented in that particular book. The other thing that was really helpful to me was uh, volume two of uh, Mark Twain's enormous autobiography. Uh, Mark Twain was a was a friend of Grant's, and, or I should say Samuel Clemens was a friend of Grant's. They had met when Clemens was quite young, and uh, Grant was the president. Uh, he probably didn't remember meeting Clemens, but they uh, they met again as as uh, time went by, and they became quite friendly. And at the end of uh, at the end of Grant's life, uh, Mark Twain, Sam Clemens, uh, was instrumental in getting him a good publishing deal and helping him to make many. Well, today, today actually, that book, if it if it were uh, in today's dollars, his memoirs, which he wrote. Uh, during that last year, uh, earned Julia about twenty to twenty-five million dollars. Um, in those days, it was probably about five hundred thousand, I think. But at any rate, uh, thanks to Twain, who helped him get a good deal, that happened. Twain remembered things in Grant's life differently from the way Grant remembered them. That's always the case, isn't it? So Twain's autobiography was helpful to me too. But uh, that was, I mean, that that was the the real. Those are the really important touchstones for for the research for this book. Now, tell the audience about Richmond and the stories that you found uh, from Richmond, especially about the tailor. <laughs> the tailor. I'm so glad you met. Not only are you the first person to mention uh, Faithful Harrison, but the first person to mention the tailor. Uh, there's something important to remember about Grant, which is that he was a very plain individual. He didn't puff himself up. Uh, he was he he was a hardworking soldier during the war, really. Although he was a general, and when the time came, the, he, here's here's the uh, here's sort of the nut of the story. When the time came for the surrender at Appomattox. Um, General Lee showed up representing the South, uh, wearing a brand new uniform, uh, a custom tailored, custom made uniform that had been made for him for the occasion. Whether he was uh, declaring a victory or surrendering, he was going to do it in a uh, in a fancy new suit. And Grant showed up for the occasion uh, wearing. <laughs> Well, quite frankly, he was wearing somebody else's clothes. He had borrowed borrowed clothing from uh, from one of the soldiers who was uh, in the in his general neighborhood, 
and uh, his clothing being, uh, I don't know what, but he had borrowed, a, he had borrowed an outfit from another soldier and uh, it was dirty. It was torn. It had uh, a, only a couple of markings on it that might indicate that he was in fact the elevated person that he was, but he showed up dirty, muddy, and uh, ready to, uh, to, to, to take the surrender of the South uh, in those terms. Now, the contrast between those two men and their two attitudes uh, of plainness and, uh, and its opposite was important to me to think about. And so I decided I was going to tell that story via an imaginary character who was the tailor who built uh, pardon me, who uh, who put together that uniform for Robert E. Lee. And uh, instead of talking about um, the two of them all the time, we put it into the, uh, into the mind of the man who made the uniform and who, of course, expected to be paid handsomely for the uniform and probably never got a nickel because the South fell uh, before he... Uh, he got his check. Now that may or may not have happened. I really don't know anything about how the uh, how the uniform was made, but that seemed like an interesting kind of a kind of a way to tell a story that was indirect. And I kind of like indirection sometimes. How important was coffee in your story? <laughs> oh, how important was coffee during the Civil War? I actually had a whole chunk on. Uh, on Grant drinking drinking coffee in his office that I threw out when I was working on the book. I was a little too, uh, too maybe I was drinking too much coffee myself. I don't know. Uh, but in any event, um, yeah, it was one of those things that uh, you didn't have enough of in the privation of, uh, of wartime. And uh, I, I like to think that not only was he... Uh, a fan of a good cup of coffee, but he, as we know, he was a fan of a of a good cigar, which is the uh, which became the problem in his life. Of course, when he was dying of cancer, it was throat cancer, and he had uh, smoked an average. You'll find this hard to believe, although you've read the book, so you know it's true. Uh, he smoked an average of between twenty and twenty five cigars a day. I don't know how that's possible, but he did it. Uh, he began to, to to be given cigars by uh, admirers when he was fighting the war, and uh, he was grateful for the gifts, and uh, it ended up not doing him any favors. So uh, I, maybe the coffee just sort of offset the cigars for me. Now, you talk about Ward in the chapter 40 Days and 40 Nights, Tell us one of the stories around that. There was a, a particular moment talking about the about the war with uh, with the, the Battle of Chattanooga. Chattanooga was another was another place where I kind of wanted to tell a story indirectly, uh, where the, the the story of uh, the siege of that town gets told in large measure from the point of view of a, of a young soldier who's a, who plays the fiddle. Um, we get to meet uh, um, General Bragg, who was uh, in charge of, the, uh, of that part of the Southern Army, and we get to, he, was a, he was a famously cruel individual, and he, uh, he actually was born in a, 
in a prison where his mother was charged with murder. So he was a, a baby that came from a prison and went on to be uh, quite a ferocious leader of the uh, of the of the uh, Southern military. But we learn most of this story of what happens uh, in Chattanooga through a young boy, who uh, a young soldier who plays the violin. And, uh, and and worries sometimes that even though he's playing for the amusement and the uh, improvement of his own fellow soldiers, that there might be Union soldiers someplace hearing him play and thinking that it's a, an angel band of some kind, and he fears that he might be giving uh, comfort and aid to his enemy by, uh, by, by dint of playing, playing them a little dance music. But I, I always like to try to tell stories uh, that are that are true, kind of indirectly, if I can. And that that, like the one with the tailor, um, is an example of uh, kind of broadening the universe of the book and looking at other people who were in the general area and uh, telling things from their point of view. Now you talk about the poverty in Grant's youth. Did do you think that impacted him? in his later life also in terms of him being able to um, manage his finances. An excellent point. Now, the thing to remember for me about Grant uh, and his youth is, yeah, he grew up in a very poor, a a fairly poor family. Um, His father was a tanner and uh, Ulysses worked in the tannery, uh, which he didn't like much. Ultimately, he uh, he went from there to uh, West Point. Now, from West Point, uh, he f- basically, um, although there was there was there were a couple of intervals where he farmed. He farmed on the uh, on the property owned by uh, by uh, Julia's father. Um, but for the most part, uh, with the exception of those years. Uh, and in fact, during those years, he he, he killed himself trying to uh, keep body and soul together between this unproductive farm and uh, selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis. I mean, it was not an easy time for him. But for the rest of his life, uh, from West Point up until he was he was in the White House, um, he didn't have to think about money very much. Um, he had a he had a you know a living wage coming in from the government, and he became innocent, uh, maybe not innocent, naive might be a better word about the handling of money, uh, and that didn't serve him well because at the end he uh, he was gullible enough to be taken advantage of by this Ponzi schemer named uh, Ferdinand Ward, who. Uh, took all of his money and uh, vamoosed. He vanished into the night. He ended up, by the way, this guy Ferdinand Ward, who who uh, snookered uh, half of Wall Street, uh, he ended up in Sing Sing Prison. Uh, but uh, before that, he had uh, pauperized an awful lot of people, including this uh, unfortunate uh, Ulysses Grant, who really didn't have a great a great feeling for managing money because he'd never really had any. Now, tell us about your efforts to save the Mark Twain house and the Grant Cottage. Uh, 
the Mark Twain house has a, has gr- has a great uh, meaning to me. They both have a great meaning to me. Uh, they're both pieces of American holy ground, I think. And it's kind of funny for me that uh, Mark Twain and uh, Ulysses Grant both live in this in this most recent book of mine. Uh, but I got to know the uh, Mark Twain house probably 15 years ago. It's in uh, Hartford, Connecticut not too terribly far from my place here in Vermont. Uh, the people at the Twain House were uh, welcoming to me as the author of that book, Finn. And uh, I spoke there any number of times and uh, got to know the folks who uh, who ran it quite well. And at one point, I actually, I read in the newspaper, it must have been in the New York Times, uh, that the Twain House was in dire financial condition. Um, They had built a big museum behind the house and there was some trouble with a bookkeeper and things had not gone well and they were very near to closing their doors. So I I mean, I, I just couldn't see that happen. Uh, I couldn't sit by. Um, and I, I called the, uh, the executive director and I said, what can I do? I, you know, I, I, I can write a check, but it's not for enough money that's going to make a difference. I'm not a, some multimillionaire. And we agreed that we were going to, uh, my idea was that we would, I would bring about a dozen of my favorite writers in for an evening of reading, uh, readings from Mark Twain. Everybody had to come and uh, talk for five minutes and then read five or 10 minutes of his favorite Mark Twain. We brought a whole bunch of people in, uh, Tom Parada and uh, Arthur Phillips and so forth, Tasha Alexander. And we did uh, did this event one evening, but before the event, and this was the main part, we uh, promoted it all over the place because we knew that we couldn't make enough, uh, get enough donations from one evening in one auditorium to make an important difference. So we promoted it all over the place. We, uh, we got articles in the New York Times, we got articles in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, that raised the... Uh, it raised the profile of the Twain House as a place that needed help. And uh, just as we were about to go on, the executive director came into the, the green room with the rest of us and announced that he had just gotten a phone call from the Annenberg Foundation uh, offering him, not offering him, offering the house uh, a donation that was sufficient to right the ship and keep them open and uh, they have been able to uh, to recover, and uh, the the place is in grand shape now. So to me, that was that was about the uh, most important and uh, highest work that I've ever been able to do was uh, helping the Twain House to to recover. And uh, and now I find that there's a uh, Grant Cottage over in New York State. Uh, is another one of these marvelous places where important uh, historical events in American history took place. It's uh, the cottage where Grant died. It's about an hour and a half from my house. I didn't even know that it existed until a year or so ago. Um, And uh, it's a, uh, it's, let me see, it's run strictly by volunteers. And it's uh, a, a U.S., 
historical site. I think it's a it's both a New York State historic site and uh, and, and a national historic site, and it's uh, it, it's very well preserved. But heaven knows, uh, not enough people know about it. And I have a funny feeling that uh, that doing something to make that place better known may be the next thing on my agenda. I don't know. Sounds like a great project. It does. Well, what is the message that you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? Or is there a message? Well, there are always messages, aren't there? Um, really, I think uh, among the things that I that I want people to take away from this book uh, are matters of character. Um, one, that uh, this figure... Uh, Ulysses Grant that we know a little bit about. We know that he was a hero. We know that he had a great military mind, uh, but we don't know um, what a kind, generous human being the record shows that he was. And 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 I like to be able to think about that. He was a. Not only was he uh, kind to his, you know, in, in love with his family and his and his nation and those people he worked with and other soldiers and so forth and so forth, but they loved him too. He was probably the biggest celebrity in the world at the time that he was alive. He traveled to every nation in the world. Uh, a parade broke out almost everywhere he went. And he was, he was really looked up to and, uh, and he, was, he, he was affectionate in return. Um, I want people to know that about him. I also want people to think about um, what the nation went through at the close of the Civil War and uh, and the work that uh, that Grant knew was yet to be done. I mean, he had to he he fought the KKK during his time as the president. Uh, there was no way that he could have thought when he went to his to his grave that the work of reconciliation in this country was done. Uh, he knew it wasn't done. He hoped it would be done when the war ended. Uh, but as we all know, it's not over. Uh, we, we, we still need to do some serious work uh, about taking care of one another and making us into one diverse country. And I think, uh, I think if there's anything that, uh, poor old dead Ulysses would approve of about my book right now, I think it would be that message that the, that, that the important work has just begun. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on? Uh, it's on my computer right now. In fact, I just, uh, I had to close it down to, <laughs> to speak with you. Uh, frankly, uh, I don't like to talk about things very much, but I, I, uh, I, I, th I think I can promise that it will be historical. It's probably not about, uh, about an actual person. This was a kind of a, an aberration for me to write about an actual person, although I enjoyed it. Um, but I think it's probably going to be set in around the same time frame. And I think uh, readers who uh, have come to appreciate my, my work in that area will feel right at home in it. Well, we'll be looking forward to that book. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you, Deidre. I appreciate your, uh, your welcoming me here.